Ten seconds, Super. Kiss my heart, I want you to hold it between your knees. There's never a cop around when you need one. You got a little pretty mail thing. Well, do you, Bunk? I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet and putting up This cat shop is a bad mother. Shut your Welcome to Vintage Video's 12 Days of Christmas, where as a special treat this year, we're reviewing all 12 Patreon options for December of 1973, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 50th anniversary of the release of The Exorcist on December 26, 1973. It was written by William Peter Blatty, based on his own novel of the same name, directed by William Friedkin, and released by Warner Brothers. Does that make The Exorcist a Christmas movie? I mean, obviously. Okay. I feel like it's very blatantly a Christmas movie. <laughs> in the 1940s, a young boy named Ronald Edwin Hunkeler lived with his family in Cottage City, Maryland. Without siblings, his parents and Aunt Harriet were his closest friends. Harriet was a spiritualist and gifted her nephew Ronald a Ouija board when he asked her how they worked. Sometime later, Harriet passed away, and in the ensuing months, the house was reportedly haunted by a presence that lifted objects into the air, usually in Ronald's presence. Ronald's parents brought these stories to their family pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, who asked to observe the boy overnight and corroborated the testimony of poltergeist activity. When the child graduated from family concern to his first official exorcism, the child tore a spring loose from the mattress he was strapped to and managed to slash open the arm of the priest performing the exorcism. More priests and bishops were dispatched to the home where they all reported a floating and shaking bed flying objects, and an inhuman voice coming from the child's mouth, until finally an exorcism stuck, and the boy was supposedly freed of his demonic possession. Sorry. This whole th You're trying to this tell me true that story. the exorcist is based on a true yes, story. it is. The boy's identity was only officially released about a year ago, and post-exorcism he led a fairly normal life recruited by NASA as an engineer and patenting technologies that allowed shuttles to withstand the extreme heat on their way to orbit. We well, let a demon boy be involved in space launches. This is why they kept it secret until he was dead. It's interesting that it clo ties so closely to Ninth Configuration. Yeah, then. exactly. <laughs> You'll die up but there. But incidentally, because they wouldn't have known. Right? So basically, the it changes the quote to, I'm the reason you won't die up there. He passed away in 2020. The details of the case were compiled by a priest and witness, William S. Bowden, whose notes made their way to William Peter Blatty, who had heard the story as a student at Georgetown University in the 50s. In adapting the story to a novel, Blatty made some significant changes to the story, like changing the sex of the subject of the exorcism and a few family details, at their request. They didn't want it to be a story specifically about their son. Yeah, that, that, that's, that seems like a good idea. Yeah. Blatty shared the unpublished novel with close friend and The Birds actress Tippi Hedren, who was fascinated and advised her husband Noel Marshall to help get it published. In 1971, Harper and Rowe published Blatty's novel, expecting a huge response, and sent the author on a cross-country tour. While well-received critically, it did not sell anywhere near expectations. Plans were already in motion to discontinue future publications of the book, and Blatty was even treated to a farewell luncheon by the publisher when a last-minute opportunity arose to promote the book with an interview on The Dick Cavett Show after actor Robert Shaw canceled last minute. Can you guess why? <laughs> Uh, Jaws? He was too drunk to appear oh. on television. Oh, no. 
Cavett was admittedly disinterested in the supernatural, but let their conversation run long, and The Exorcist quickly found itself atop the New York Times bestseller list. Blatty had a hard time pitching the story to movie studios for adaptation because he insisted on producing himself with Noel Marshall credited as an EP. Marshall was expecting a 15% share of the profits from an unsigned agreement with Blatty, but Blatty refused to abide by the agreement, as it was unsigned. It was just a spoken agreement. Marshall brought a suit against Blatty because he was strapped for cash to support his family and a collection of lions who would go on to star in 1981's Roar, one of which was actually named Billy after William Peter Blatty. The case was settled out of court. Lou Grade made an offer but wouldn't let Blatty produce. Shirley MacLaine, a close friend of Blatty's on whom Chris McNeil was based, was also interested in financing an adaptation but required him to surrender his producerial position. He briefly partnered with Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid producer Paul Monash to score a distribution deal with Warner Brothers, and when Blatty caught Monash scheming to strip him of his producer credit, he cut Monash off at the pass and made arrangements with WB to drop him from his producer slot. I feel like it's kind of telling that if Shirley McLean was, like, friends with this dude and also didn't want him to produce, like, maybe there's something to it. I think it was more that people saw that it was going to make a lot of money. Oh. And they all wanted a piece of the pie, and he was like, no, I can see that, and I wrote it, so I get the pie. Okay, so pie he just wanted me. too too much pie, and everyone else was like, I will help you, but yeah. I get pie. Blatty adapted the novel into a screenplay himself. The biggest difference is that in the book, all symptoms attributed to the possession are left ambiguous enough to also be explained by science, even citing specific cases as examples. When director William Friedkin was attached, Blatty told friends he was fully prepared for the changes to the script that that process entails, but Friedkin stayed very true to Blatty's vision, proposing no changes, except in places asking Blatty's permission to restore excised dialogue from the source novel. So... What Blatty turned in as a screenplay was actually more changed from the book than what they ended up shooting and making. The, the movie follows the book extremely closely. Right. Freakin brought it back closer yes. to the book. Yeah, I get it. Blatty basically tried to make changes to the timeline and introduced all these flashbacks to try and explain things out of order in a way that he thought was more filmic. And Freakin was like, no, if you want this to feel real, you need to tell the story in order and just make it seem very natural yeah which i think that was super successful honestly yeah i think so too casting time reagan the daughter pamela ferdin the voice of lucy van pelt in several peanut specials and fern arable in the animated charlotte's web was considered but it was decided at the time that she was too well known for the part also considered was dark shadows actress and willy wonka's violet beauregard denise nickerson but her family objected to the script's disturbing content jamie lee curtis was sought for the part but again her mother would not let her audition do you guys recall the last time Janet Lee wouldn't let her daughter appear in a scary movie? It was garbage. So it's okay that she wasn't in it. But Janet oh, she, Lee but was she, in it. But she wasn't in it. Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't in it. Janet Lee was in it. Uh, psycho? <laughs> no. It was garbage, I said. <laughs> really shitting on Hitchcock in the middle of our exercise. <laughs> Night of the Lepus. Oh. Other actresses brought in to audition included Laura Dern, Kim Basinger, Sharon Stone, Brooke Shields, who was turned away for being too young, and Melanie Griffith, which makes sense considering her mother Tippy's connection to the property. Kay Lenz has claimed that she was offered the part and turned it down, but Friedkin asserts that she was too old at the time. Several sitcom kids were brought in for the part, including Anissa Jones, Buffy from Family Affair, Dana Plato, Kimberly on Different Strokes, and Eve Plum, TV's Jan Brady. Sure, Jan. 
Eleanor Blair brought in her daughter, Linda, unsolicited after various meetings with Warner Brothers casting people, and Friedkin appreciated that Eleanor seemed the antithesis of a stage mother. Linda Blair was also perfectly comfortable with the more risque material as well. And according to Friedkin, at least, when he explained the scene where Reagan violates herself with a crucifix, he asked if she knew what masturbation was, and if she'd ever done it, and she said, sure, haven't you? Which I think is a weird thing to ask a child. Yeah. Not necessary for the scene. Right. But she also says that she did not know what these words meant at the time. So I don't know which one of them to trust, because they've <laughs> both said things that I don't believe. So it's up to you, the listener. Friedkin intended to digitally alter Blair's voice for the demonic scenes, but eventually voice actress Mercedes McCambridge was employed to dub over the lines with the Pazuzu voice, and actress Eileen Dietz served as a body double for some of the more adult moments. When the film was released, however, McCambridge and Dietz went uncredited because Friedkin had hoped to secure Blair the Oscar he believes she deserved. But when word got out that multiple actresses had been unfairly neglected in the credits, Academy voters soured on Blair's nomination, and it may have in fact cost her the Oscar. Mm. But he claims that they told him to take their names out of the credits because they didn't want credit. They didn't want to take away from what the girl was doing, and they don't say that that's what happened, so... Again, you can believe who you want, but Friedkin kind of makes things up. McCambridge and Dietz went to court over it, and subsequent re-releases have included credits for both of them. So that seems pretty telling that right? they did want their names yeah. in there. Yeah. Now for casting Chris, the mother. Audrey Hepburn was Blatty's first choice for the part and was willing to appear, but required her scenes to be shot in Rome, which was unfortunately not an option with their budget. Next, they went to Anne Bancroft, who was also interested, but in her first trimester of pregnancy and would need time the production didn't have to give birth. Several actresses turned down the script because they found it revolting, specifically Jane Fonda, Geraldine Page, and Barbara Streisand. I can't even imagine Audrey Hepburn doing something like this, though. Like, it, I think it'd be fascinating. I, but it yeah. just seems so far outside of anything else that she had done. Yeah, she, but that, I think that's what would have made it really great. Yeah. I mean, she, to be honest, the, the mom isn't in a lot of the, like, I guess, most extreme scenes. Yeah. So, like, I guess that that. I mean, works. she's in the one most extreme scene. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Another actress who petitioned hard for the part was Louise Fletcher, who, despite being turned down, agreed to come back and play a major role in the film's sequel. Yeah. I do love Louise Fletcher. Yeah. Others considered included The Omen's Lee Remick, Carol Burnett, who was vetoed by the studio, and Shirley MacLaine, on whom the part was based but who had just starred in something uncomfortably similar. At one point, the mother-daughter team of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher were considered for both parts, but I feel like Fisher would have been too old in 73 to play this. Mm. Burstyn pushed hard for consideration, but Warner Brothers studio head Ted Ashley was adamantly against it until nobody else came forward as a legitimate option. Casting Karis, the young priest. Alan Alda was offered the part. Yeah. I assume the part of Father Karis, but it wasn't specified, but he seems like... He fits that role. But he was not a fan of the book, so we missed out on what could have been a bizarre same-time-next-year prequel. Blatty was a big fan of The French Connection and also considered Gene Hackman for the part. Friedkin suggested Roy Scheider, who was also in The French Connection, but Blatty vetoed him. Other names I found that were considered included Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Burt Reynolds, Ryan O'Neill, Peter Fonda, John Voight, Robert Blake, Christopher Walken, Elaine Delon, James Kahn, Elliot Gould, and George Hamilton, who I love, but find an odd choice here. Yeah. I, I feel a lot of those people could have done the role, but I don't think that 
I feel like they're all too high profile. Yeah. I mean, maybe not at the time. Maybe Dustin Hoffman would have been okay, but this that's still postgraduate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> postgraduate. <laughs> also considered were Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, and Paul Newman, who was actually interested in the part. Blatty hired Stacy Keach, but after Keach was already contracted to the part, Friedkin was contacted by Jason Miller, who felt a personal connection to the character, having spent three years studying to become a Jesuit priest and quitting after a crisis of faith. So he seems like right. the perfect choice for this. Miller convinced Friedkin to at least consider a screen test with him and Ellen Burstyn, at which point Friedkin admitted he was perfect for the part, and the studio bought Keach out of his contract. Obviously, they would go on to appear together in The Ninth Configuration, which Blatty considers a direct sequel to this film. Interestingly, Friedkin has said that Blatty expressed a keen interest in playing Karras himself and was even willing to give up his profit percentage in exchange for the role, but the studio decided against it. Interesting. Yeah. Marin, the old priest. Warner Brothers tried to force Marlon Brando on the production to play Marin, but Friedkin refused because he wanted the story to be the star. He didn't want it to be a Marlon Brando film. Blatty's first choice was Paul Schofield, but Friedkin's was Max von Sydow. Sydow? I don't know how to pronounce it. When he finally met von Sydow, he was surprised to find such a young man, since he'd played so many older characters for Ingmar Bergman. Naturally, von Sydow assumed he'd be reading for the Karis part and never understood why the 44-year-old actor, only three years older than Ellen Burstyn, was brought in for a 70-something-year-old priest. Not unlike Louise Fletcher with the Chris role, Richard Burton had auditioned for the Marin part, and agreed to come back as a different older priest character in John Borman's sequel. After Exorcist 2 and Night of the Iguana, I thought we had something. (laughs) Burke Dennings, the director of the film Within a Film, on the way to actor Jack McGowan, Cabo Blanco, and Happy Birthday to Me director J. Lee Thompson was brought in to play the character, since it was originally based on him. Thompson accepted and later turned down the part. Lieutenant Kinderman. This was the last feature film appearance of Lee J. Cobb, but not the last appearance of his character, who comes back as the lead in Blatty's Exorcist Three in 1990, played by George C. Scott. Seven years later, Scott would replace Cobb again in the part of Juror Number 3 in the 1997 remake of Twelve Angry Men, directed by William Friedkin. The director. Arthur Penn was offered the director chair, as was Peter Bogdanovich, who had other projects in mind and later regretted passing on it. Mike Nichols stepped away because he thought the heavy themes of the story were too much to rest on the performance of a young child. Similarly, John Borman turned down an opportunity to direct because he thought the film was impossible to render without being cruel to the central child, but agreed to helm the second film because by then Reagan was a teenager. Even Alfred Hitchcock was offered the job, but was not interested unless he had sole ownership of the rights to the project, which nobody was willing to give up. Kubrick was also interested in the project, but amusingly he was dismissed by the studio who feared he would go over budget and schedule, which wound up happening anyway. The studio recommended Mark Rydell, but Blatty screened the French Connection for Warner executives to sell them on William Friedkin as an option. They still weren't sold until he turned around and won a bunch of Oscars with it, because it had just come out at the time that he was selling them on Friedkin. The awards sealed the deal, and Blatty was interested in Friedkin's documentary style to sell the realism of the story. Blatty attempted to remove Friedkin from the film when he saw that the $4.2 million budget was spiraling out of control, but when Friedkin's legal team and the studio lawyers confirmed that he did not have that power, Blatty said that as producer, he was done keeping an eye on costs, and the film wound up costing over three times the agreed-upon budget, but it made back $441 million (laughs) in the box office, which adjusted for inflation is still the highest-grossing horror film of all time and in the top ten films of all time. 
The original shooting schedule was 85 days, and filming in America lasted 224 days. Oh, my gosh. To get a stressed or disoriented performance from his cast, Friedkin was known to fire blanks on set just before takes began. Only Linda Blair was ever warned in advance to ensure that Reagan would look as calm as a cucumber by comparison. This practice ended when Jason Miller angrily cornered the director, insisting that as a professional actor, he didn't need real-life motivations to act surprised. The production has been described by many as a cursed one. The set of the McNeil home interior was destroyed by fire early in the production after what was blamed on a bird flying into a circuit breaker, and it took a month and a half to rebuild. The enormous Pazuzu statue we see in the Iraq desert was, by mistake, shipped first to Hong Kong, causing further delays. How do you mistakenly ship something to Hong Kong? I don't get it. (laughs) Injuries were incurred by most of the major cast, including permanent spinal damage to both Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair. Carpenter severed fingers with buzz saws by mistake, and when a prop was dropped on a gaffer's toe, it was mashed beyond saving, requiring an amputation. Oh my god. Jack McGowan, who plays the director of the film within the film, died within a week of wrapping his part on the production. Vasiliki Melieros, who played the mother of Father Karras, had also passed away by the time the film was released, but she was also in her late 80s, so yeah. makes sense. The deaths of a set night watchman, one of the operators of the refrigerated bedroom set, and the newborn child of the film's assistant editor have all been attributed to the curse. So the the newborn died while they were editing it? Or shortly after? or Yeah, presumably during post-production. Yeah. Moving further from the set, Linda Blair's grandmother and pet mouse died during the production. Max von Sydow's brother passed away his first day on set, the day they shot the famous Arrival of the Exorcist shot. Jason Miller's son was injured in a motorcycle accident and was hospitalized in intensive care. And then moving on to things I presume are completely fabricated, during a screening of the film in Rome, a 400-year-old cross was allegedly struck by lightning and fell into the empty plaza below. But every movie ever made about Jesus claims at least one convenient lightning strike. (laughs) The cast also includes a man that we've brought up on the show before, Mr. Paul Bateson. He plays the assistant radiologist when Reagan is being put through a battery of medical exams. When William Friedkin was gearing up to direct Cruising in 1980, he wanted the perspective of an actual murderer to inform his approach and learned that his former cast member was being prosecuted for the murder of a film critic. Friedkin met with Bateson in prison to discuss the real-life serial murder and dismemberment of a string of gay victims in the New York S&M scene. Long after his conviction for the first murder, Bates confessed in prison to actually having committed the murders he discussed with Friedkin, but he was never prosecuted for the additional killings. So without knowing it, Friedkin was interviewing a serial murderer about his own killings for perspective in portraying that character on film. The filmmakers were upset to find that Warner Brothers had set the film for a December 26th release, But the counter-programming benefit and the time off from work everyone had ended up powering unexpected success in the box office, and it stayed in theaters for two years due to persistent demand. Well, I think, uh, so one of the things that I was um, reading about was that this was the first horror film to sort of uh, bring horror to the mainstream, and by mainstream, we need white christians yeah people (laughs) would like bring their kids to this well yeah so so like you know whereas horror previously was sort of uh you know this outcast genre like Mm -hmm. a subversive thing you know it, it what it was although it was popular it was popular among like a certain type of person that would yeah. go see that sort of thing whereas this one was scaring people who were 
in the majority who were right. white Christians. And, and so because, that that led it to being something that we had never seen before that was in popularity. And it also came with the blessing of all the religious people that were involved in its production. So to that effect, churches were willing to be like, we're going to bring our church group to see The Exorcist because it's important. And right. even though it's completely terrifying and it's like, yeah, that's that's the devil. He's pretty scary, right? Keep coming to church. Right. Pazuzu. Right, but they didn't. <laughs> they, they didn't. They know. didn't say. They don't say Pazuzu in the movie. The film came back to theaters with a few deleted scenes in 2000 as the version you've never seen, which is the only version I've ever seen. Yeah, um, I, I had so many questions because it's been it's been a while since I had seen it, but the the version I remember had a lot more of those like flash of images that linger uh for a moment those are in both versions of the film okay because because this one had a few but the one i I'm, i remember watching one that had a lot more mm. yeah i i don't know how many are in the version that i have seen quote unquote because mm. i haven't seen that version i've only seen the version you've never seen so i've i've seen both versions because i think originally i saw the director's cut i think i saw the director's cut first it's actually the writer's cut the director's the... cut is the theatrical version <laughs> okay the writer's cut Sorry. Um, the new one, the yeah. the remastered one or whatever, I, I saw that one first. And then the one that I watched this time around was the original version. Which is what they have on HBO, I guess. Which is on which is streaming on HBO right now. So that's the one that I watched. Um, but that also, it does have the faces flashing in it. But yeah. it doesn't have the additional scenes. There's a 10 more minutes of footage that's in the recut version. Right, yeah. Newspapers of the time made a big stink of the audience reaction to the film, mostly fainting and nausea, though Blatty has pointed out that usually the sicknesses arise not from the film's depiction of supernatural elements, but of existing medical procedures, and especially the cerebral angiography, which is the part that freaks everybody out. Yeah, that was freaky. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it was such a common reaction, some theaters even went to the trouble of keeping an ambulance on hand to deal with the ill customers. At the following Oscar ceremony, the film collected a rare bouquet of nominations for Best Picture, Actress for Burston, Actor Supporting for Miller, Actress Supporting for Blair at only 12 years old. How is she supporting in this? I I mean, because she's played by four people. But I just, I don't understand the difference between actress and actress supporting. Because if you ask me who's the main character of The Exorcist, it's Linda Blair. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem arbitrary to say that someone is a supporting actress in this situation. But you can't say that two people are the best actress for some reason. Yeah. It was also nominated for Best Director, Best Cinematography, Art Direction, and Editing, with wins for Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. Notably, Blair lost in her category to the only ever younger nominee, 10-year-old Tatum O'Neill, who won for her part of Addie Loggins in Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. The film has been followed so far by two direct sequels, one spiritual sequel, a parody film, two prequels, and two seasons of a television series, at least one foreign ripoff, probably more, and I watched all of it to prepare for this episode, but we'll discuss these works after the film. The film opens on the exterior of the McNeil home, supposedly a former home of author William Peter Blatty during his time as a student of Georgetown, and dissolves to a statue in a church. Over the opening titles, we hear Muslim prayers being chanted and fade into a desert in Iraq at an archaeological dig, that reminded me vividly of the Tannis dig from Raiders of the Lost Ark. See, uh, my note is uh, Hamanoptera. Oh, okay, mm. sure. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, this, here it is. I did hear that uh, Brandon Fraser says that he might actually 
agree to come back and do another mummy movie oh my god which would be freaking great i would love that but you know the the raiders one we we mentioned looked exactly like the one the from awakening awakening yeah, yeah. A young boy runs through a maze of ruins to report to Father Marin that something has been discovered. In a small cavern, they found a collection of artifacts from different historical periods, including a St. Joseph's medal and a dirt-encrusted Pazuzu figurine. Pazuzu is an actual figure of Mesopotamian mythology, the king of the wind demons, and a portent of illness and plague. The St. Joseph medal was actually a Friedkin addition to the story, and I'd guess that Blatty approved because in his pseudo-sequel, The Ninth Configuration, a St. Christopher medal plays an important part of the story. We see Marin enjoy a drink at a local shop and then cut to someone doing sketches of his various finds in a notebook. Uh, enjoying? Is this is, I don't. Is this when he's taking his pill? Yeah, I don't he's think, enjoying it. <laughs> I don't think he's enjoying it. I, I think he's freaking out and trying to get a pill, and he's just trying to drink anything to get this pill down. No, he loves it. <laughs> He notices the clock in the room has frozen in place. As he walks away from the building, apparently on his way to leave the region, he is nearly run over by a passing horse and carriage. Supposedly, the female passenger here is 109 years old, so the terrified look she's giving from the rickety carriage is probably genuine. <laughs> I think Friedkin made her do it like five or six times, too, so her bones are powder. Later, we see Marin wandering through more ruins, and he finds himself in the shadow of another enormous Pazuzu statue, complete with massive erect dong. But I'm pretty sure this is not here. This is a vision that he's having because it doesn't make any sense that there would just be a Pazuzu statue here that nobody had found. And it comes back later. And I think it's also not supposed to actually be there later. Some dogs fight nearby and then Marin's attention turns back to the statue, which sort of waves at him because <laughs> we get like an insert of it raising one. Yeah, it, it's, it's like those like uh, cats with a paw. Yeah, going back you and put forth. the coin down and it steals it. <laughs> <laughs> We dissolve to a sun setting over the desert and then to Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn, is looking over the script for a movie she's starring in called Crash Course, which is a Warner Brothers film, uh, according to signs we'll see on set and on the call sheet. Not a real film, though. No, it's not a real yeah. film, but in, in the novel, it is called Crash Course, but it's described as a musical comedy version of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. What? But this feels more like a like political drama. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like an RPM type. Well, it, it kind of reminded me of a Small Circle of Friends. Sure. Yeah. Not unlike that. I'm, I'm going to argue at the end here that this movie is too long. Does not need to be two hours long. Okay. And yeah. at this point- Some of this stuff could be coming out of it. At this point, I'm just saying we are 10 minutes into the film- having just watched him doing all this archaeological dig stuff, which could have been, like, one scene. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Chris hears a strange sound and puts on a robe to investigate. It seems to be coming from the attic. She double-checks her daughter Reagan's room and finds the girl, played by Linda Blair, sleeping above the sheets with a window open and curtains flowing into the room on a breeze. The next morning, she tells one of her servants, Carl, that there are rats in the attic and he'll need to buy traps. We cut away to the set of the film Chris is doing, as extras portraying protesters crowd around the entrance of a church. Chris wrangles the director, Burke, with some questions about the scene before taking her mark. Her character muscles through the protesters and snags a megaphone from a student to lecture the crowd, and the camera follows another uninvolved priest, Father Karras, played by Jason Miller, away from the church. After she is wrapped for the day, Chris decides to walk home, and we get our first hint of the famous Tubular Bells music that has become synonymous with the film. Mm -hmm. 
A few children pass her on the sidewalk in costume, suggesting this is either Halloween night or within a few days. She stops, passing a church courtyard, when she hears a man confessing to Father Karras that he feels like a fraud, and then she continues down the street. Do you think this was meant to come out around Halloween and they just were off schedule? I don't know. Mm. I mean, it would make sense as a Halloween movie, though. Well, I mean, yeah, but it, the, the timeline moves forward so quickly. Because, I mean, that's it, true. It, it's never really explicitly said, but we can assume that months are going by. Yeah, at least a significant amount of time, because by the end, the movie is done and everything. But maybe they ended it prematurely. In her own kitchen, Chris has a chat with her social secretary, Sharon, who delivers an invitation from the White House. Her daughter, Reagan, bounces into the room to tell her about a horse she was invited to ride today and how much she wants a horse of her own when the movie is done filming. She tries to sneak a cookie from the cookie jar, and her mother chases her through the house to the foot of the stairs to laughingly wrestle it away from her. We cut from this to Father Karras walking through a subway station in Manhattan as a homeless man begs for change. We see Karras sometime later walking through a dilapidated part of town where children jump on abandoned parked cars. Karras steps into an apartment with Italian music playing on the radio. We see a few framed photos of him in boxing gloves. He moves through the apartment to find his mother passed out in front of the television. That night, he changes bandages on her leg and warns her to stay off the stairs for a while. She asks what's bothering him, but he doesn't want to share. He leaves some cash on the shelf before he steps out at night. Friedkin has expressed regret for not labeling this scene with a Manhattan title card because some audiences assumed that this was all Georgetown and Karis's later guilt for abandoning her doesn't make much sense since he's in the same city. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... It doesn't really matter. It doesn't, but you labeled Iraq and you labeled Georgetown. So it is a little yeah. weird to not label That's true. going to a different it, city. That, that, would, that would have helped with consistency and would have sold the, sold it. But I think you understand that he's not near her, or even if he is near her, he is not spending time or living with her. Right, yes. Back at the McNeil home in the basement, Reagan shows her mom a new clay creation, and Chris finds a Ouija board by the stairs. Reagan says she found it in the closet and teaches her mother how to use it. She explains that she uses it all the time to speak with someone named Captain Howdy, who is presumably named after her father Howard, who walked out on his family a ways back. We learn his name from a tabloid headline. She asks Captain Howdy a starter question. Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? Captain Howdy? Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. Well, maybe sleeping. We cut from this to Chris tucking Reagan in for the night, and she finds a gossip magazine under the covers with the headline, Big Trouble in the McNeil Marriage, the night Howard walked out on his wife. They make plans to go sightseeing for Reagan's upcoming birthday, which is presumably sometime in early November, according to the film, but according to the novel, it's in April. Reagan tells her mother that she can invite the film's director, Burke, because she thinks Chris has plans to marry him, but Chris assures Reagan she's mistaken. Yeah, and, b and based on how they cast this, I think that's a that's a weird thing. Yeah, to they're have actually not set up super far apart in age. But yeah, they feel very they far do. apart yes. in terms of a relationship. Yeah, at a nearby bar, Karis brings a round of beers to a booth that he's sharing with Tom Birmingham, the president of Georgetown University. He's struggling with the burden of guilt for not being with his mother in her final days, or what he perceives as her final days. It seems like he's been put in a position to inspire other priests to maintain their faith, and he doesn't feel cut out for it. He wants to be reassigned somewhere closer to his mother, but Tom insists he's needed here. I need out. I'm unfit. I think I've lost my faith, Tom. 
We jump forward to Reagan's birthday, and Chris is arguing with a phone operator because she's been unable to reach Reagan's father in Rome to get a birthday message for her. In the middle of the night, the phone rings, and it's her morning wake-up call, reminding her it's time to get to set. She flicks on a light and notices Reagan sleeping beside her. What are you doing here? My bed was shaking. I can't get to sleep. We hear more of the sounds that Chris has blamed on rats emanating from the attic door. This time, she decides to check on the sound herself and pulls down the attic stairs. She lights a candle to see her way around up there and finds the traps that Carl bought, but no rats. Suddenly, the flame of her candle explodes into a fireball and then blows itself out just as Carl emerges from the entrance behind her to confirm there are no rats up here. She's understandably shaken by his sudden appearance. In this situation, the swelling of her candle flame is supposed to be explained by a draft that Carl pushed in when he mm, stood up yeah. into the doorway. Well, I would just never I would never bring a candle up into an attic with right. all the potential particles in the air and yeah. cobwebs and stuff. Like it seems like a very, very poor way to uh light an attic. And what was your plan? Like <laughs> you were gonna find a rat and just grab it with your non candle <laughs> hand? <laughs> I think it was just proving that they existed. She seemed pretty sure already, but yeah. And and but why but why is this going on in the attic? I, I she might just be misinterpreting where the sound is coming from. Okay. Yeah, because for yeah, I, I don't like you watch something like um I can't remember if it was the original paranormal activity or the sequels, but yeah. but they hear things in the attic when they go up there, that's where they find the f- photograph. Like there was there was a but reason. But since there's not anything in the attic, yeah, like there's nothing like there's not like a, a talisman or or something like the Ouija board wasn't put up there, right? Like after Reagan was done with it or something. That would make sense too, though. At a nearby church, we see a priest bring in two fully packed flower pots, but he finds one of the statues at the altar has been altered. <laughs> it has conical breasts and a conical penis attached to its front, and it's all been smeared with a bloody red color. We cut from here to Reagan at the doctor's office getting some blood drawn and other various tests. So, Sorry, I want to go back to the church yeah, scene. Yeah, go for it. So is this totally unrelated? No. No? Okay. Uh, there's information in the book that is not in the movie that I will come to okay. in a little bit. Actually, I might come to it after the plot of the film, but it's not totally unrelated. All right. And it does, in the film, feed into the suspicions of the detective on the case of the death of Burke. We cut from here to Reagan at the doctor's office getting some blood drawn and other various tests. During one of them, we get an insert of a couple of frames of a painted demon face. Reagan is short with the attending physician, and for a moment, we see a nurse catching her humming a little sing-songy tune before passing out on the floor. The doctor emerges to explain the results to Chris and writes her a prescription for Ritalin. He also mentions some surprising language she used during the test. It's uncharacteristic for I don't her. understand. She doesn't swear. She let loose quite a string while I was examining her, Mrs. Nivea. Well, I find that hard to believe. What'd she say? Her vocabulary is rather extensive. Well, give me an example. What did, like, like what? Specifically, what did she say? Well, specifically, Mrs. McNeil, she advised me to keep my fingers away from her. Goddamn cunt. can't believe it we cut from this moment to so that that section's not in the original oh it's not Mm -mm. interesting because that's in the book they cut that line from the theatrical they cut that scene 
Yeah. I mean, huh. that, I mean that makes that makes sense with American. You're just trying cult. to keep things moving faster. No, no, I was. I honestly, I think it's because of of American culture and the use of the c word. Well, they use it later though yeah. in the original. Uh, that's true. But but Reagan's using. I mean, yeah, I don't know. She she uses it once later. Interesting. Yeah. We cut from this moment to a mental hospital back in Manhattan, where Karis's uncle is trying to justify admitting his sister for care. According to director Friedkin, the women we see in this facility are all actual patients. Oh. Who they oh. didn't have oh. express permission from, That's obviously. Icky. Yeah. Karis oh. finds her and tries to talk to her, but Mrs. Karis is inconsolable and will not speak with her son. Why would it be to me, Demi? Why? Mama, I'm going to take you out of here, Mama. Mama, I'm going to take you home. Oh, that's a terrible idea. Then you said to me, that reminds me of the why are you killing everybody oh no katinka untaru in the fall why are you killing everybody that's what we say whenever one of us tells the other person something disappointing like <laughs> i went to the store sorry they were out of the pomplamoose lacroix whoa why are you killing everybody <laughs> Oh my god, that line just makes me want to cry. A, she deserved an Oscar for that. She oh was, what, my four god. in that movie? I think she was five, but still, yes, Oscar. His uncle reminds him that they can't honestly afford anything better, and we cut to Karis pounding out his frustrations into a punching bag at the gym. A few days later, at least, at the McNeil home, a swanky party is in full swing. Director Burke is here, and an astronaut in the corner describes an upcoming launch he's due for. Burke starts harassing Chris's butler, Carl, with Nazi jokes, despite the man's insistence that he is, in fact, Swiss. And you never went bowling with Goebbels either, I suppose, eh? <laughs> that sounds like quite the euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> bowling for Goebbels. In front of the fireplace, Chris asks another priest, Father Dyer, about the dark-haired father she keeps seeing around town. Dyer tells her that she is referring to Father Karras, and that Mrs. Karras passed away a few days ago, but her body was only discovered last night on account of her living alone. Naturally, Karras blames himself. Does that mean that he got her out of the yeah, facility? I think he, yeah, I think he did. Which, I mean... So it's just extra guilt. Yeah, it's, it's just like, like he's guilt, he feels guilty that she got put in there, feels guilty that he took her out, yeah. and then she died. <laughs> and then he didn't go and, and visit for enough days. And then he didn't find her for a few days. Yeah. 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 Jesus. Yeah, when a smell finds your mom, that's the problem. Alone in the kitchen together, Burke continues leveling accusations at Carl until the man's hands are gripped tight around his throat and their fight is broken up by other guests. We get a single shot of Chris checking on Reagan to establish that she is home, but supposedly sleeping. But at the end of the shot here, Reagan's eyes snap open. Yeah. Well, there's no way you can sleep with that kind of no. ruckus going on. Plus, it's a party. You want to be down there. And it's for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Chris and Sharon lead the stumbling drunk Burke back to his ride home. Father Dyer plays the piano for several enthusiastic guests when Reagan wanders into the room and offers a word of warning to the astronaut. You're going to die up there. Canonically, we know that this is Captain Billy Cutshaw, portrayed in the ninth configuration by actor Scott Wilson, and we'll learn in that film that her words shook him to his core, to the point that he suffered a nervous breakdown on the launch pad and was sent to an asylum. In the room, though, the astronaut doesn't react outwardly to her words, and she punctuates the prophecy by pissing on the carpet. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned someone pissing on a carpet at a dinner party in an Ellen Burstyn movie? Oh, uh, same time next year. That's right. Mm -hmm. Alan Alda's wife peed on the carpet from laughing so hard. Was that a reference to this? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we hard cut to Chris giving her daughter a sponge bath later. 
Tucked into bed, Reagan asks what's wrong with her, and Chris says that she will just have to stick to her medicine and trust the doctors for now. Halfway down the stairs, Chris hears a loud clattering and Reagan crying for help, and when she throws open the door to the bedroom, she sees her daughter gripping for dear life to a bed, wobbling violently back and forth, an effect achieved by stagehands puppeteering the bed from the other side of the wall behind the headboard. Okay, so I really like the bed effect because it feels really uneven and like unnatural yeah. in the way that it's moving yeah. because it's clearly not it's clearly not a, a crane or hydraulics right. in, 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 in because it's not sort of mechanical in its movement at all. Mm-hmm. So I really liked how they did that. Yeah. At the Georgetown dorms, Father Dyer stops by to check on Father Karras. They split a bottle of Chivas Regal together and Dyer leaves when Karras is ready to pass out. He dreams about a St. Joseph medal and his mother crying. We cut to Reagan in another doctor's office, resisting a shot and being held down by four doctors at once, even spitting in their faces, and then it's back to Karras in church. A doctor tells Chris that Reagan is likely suffering from scarring in her temporal lobe and that it can be fixed with surgery and a scraping away of the scar tissue, but that could be causing spasms that shake the bed. Chris is insistent that the bed was clearly shaking on its own, but the doctor has to remind her that that is literally impossible. Yeah. I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing with me on it. Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. Now we see Reagan being loaded by radiologists into a brain scan, and the assistant in this scene, who actually has lines in the film, is convicted murderer and potential serial killer Paul Bateson, on whom the killer from Friedkin's later film Cruising is based. The doctor performs a textbook cerebral angiography, wherein a catheter is inserted into the patient's neck for the injection of an X-ray sensitive dye for the X-ray photography of the blood vessels of the brain. As soon as the catheter is inserted, Blood squirts out in spurts with the beating of Reagan's heart, and the procedure, as shown, is so medically accurate that the footage has been used in an educational setting to teach doctors the proper procedure. Oh, Jesus. It's It's creepy. I guess very quickly after they shot this scene, they changed the way that this injection is done to a different vein so they don't do it in the neck anymore. Yeah. But... Directly through the eye now. At the time, (laughs) yeah. They tried to make it as disturbing as possible. It is disturbing. Um, But it's great. Uh, That's, honestly, like, it's this stuff, uh, you know, like, all of these scenes here, though I argue that some of them are too long, that, that I think really makes this movie because... They're putting such an emphasis on the no, science. It's logical. We have to be logical about this. You're right. the bed's not moving. We're we're finding. We're just gonna keep. You know, no no page unturned. We're gonna figure out what's yeah. what's going on with her. There's there's obviously nothing unusual happening here. And the, and the honest truth is, for a vast majority of this film, like almost half of the film, nobody's even suggesting yeah. that something unnatural is happening. Yeah, and nobody wants to suggest that. Yeah. And, but the filmmakers are going out of their way to make this stuff look the most disturbing. Yeah. So that it's like, I get why people don't like science. Because it looks like this, blood squirting out of your yeah. neck and loud machines banging in your ears, and it's horrifying. And this is what you have to believe in because believing in that other stuff means that you're a crazy person. And so they they do their best to make this look extremely unappetizing even when every character is is at least agnostic and and they're they have big questions about what's going on here well and the person that we ultimately set to you know or the person that we have ultimately to set this thing in motion of you know identifying it as supernatural is also a reluctant participant is also a man of science yeah 
As the machine photographs Reagan's brain, it makes loud, intimidating banging sounds which terrify the girl, but the resulting x-rays are basically useless. The doctors have to admit that there's nothing here to report. Right on cue, a call comes from the McNeil home. Chris is requesting a house call so they can see the disturbance in person. Sharon leads the men up to Reagan's room, where she is being yanked drastically back and forth in the bed. Linda Blair was supposed to be locked tighter to a platform than she was for this scene, and the extra slack caused her extreme pain and resulted in permanent spinal damage Ugh. because she's shaking back and forth as this thing is flipping her forward and backward. She That's was supposed feel... to be locked tight to it. That's how I feel about roller coasters. I'm like, they were not designed for somebody my size, and then I just get whipped around, and I'm like, this isn't safe. Yeah. This hurts. When Reagan lands hard on the mattress for the last time, her eyes go full white and she growls like a cartoon burp. When the doctor approaches Reagan, she slaps him to the ground and demands in a demonic voice for him to fuck her while gripping her own crotch. Fuck me! Fuck me! Fuck me! An invisible force slaps Reagan hard across the cheek and a palm print appears on her face. The doctors hold her tight to the bed and administer a sedative, and maybe it's a precedent like this that informed Peter Venkman's policy of always bringing 300 cc's of Thorazine to any haunted apartments he visits. <laughs> Sharon has to drag Chris out of the room while the doctors work, and sometime later they emerge and do their best to explain Reagan's convulsions with science, but none of them is very convincing. They invoke the fable of the mother with super strength lifting a car off her child as explanation for Reagan's inhuman voice and impossible horizontal jumping. Chris is now leaning toward multiple personality disorder, but the doctors still want to do more tests, because at the time there were fewer than 100 confirmed cases of multiple personality disorder, and this is not how it presents itself. Yeah. After more tests, the doctors give Chris their approval to move on to psychiatry for an answer, and when she arrives home from the hospital that night, the street outside her home is clogged with emergency vehicles. She doesn't even seem to notice and heads inside where lights flicker in the kitchen, and in one of these blinks, a Pazuzu face is visible beside her in the darkness and disappears just as suddenly. She can't find Sharon, but the windows are open again in Reagan's room, cold enough now that she can see her breath. She closes the window and wraps Reagan up in the blankets. Coming back downstairs, she starts chewing out Sharon for leaving Reagan alone like that, but just then, the film within a film's assistant director comes through the front door to inform Chris that Burke is dead. He fell down the steps right outside their front door and broke his neck. The obvious implication here being that Burke's fall is the reason that Reagan's windows were open, which goes on to imply that Burke saw Sharon leave to pick up a prescription and went to visit Reagan alone for some reason. Probably the reason creepy old men visit children alone. And as we learned in our review of Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. A burke by name and a burke by nature. Do you remember what a burke means in that context? Like a... It's Cockney rhyming slang. Mm-hmm. A burke. As in... Burke and Hare? Berkshire Hunt. Oh. He's a cunt. <laughs> That's the point of the rhyme. The book makes it more obvious that Burke was grooming Reagan for some time before this incident. Chris is still reeling from the death of her director and good friend when she turns to see the most talked about edition of the quote-unquote version you've never seen. Reagan comes spider-walking down the steps upside down and vomits blood as she growls on the bottom step. This stunt was performed by the fourth actress to portray Reagan in the film, contortionist Anne Miles, who also went uncredited, though in Friedkin's defense the scene was cut from the theatrical release. Despite her assurances that she could perform without it, Miles was attached to a wired rig so that she could walk on just the tips of her fingers and toes, though in at least one take the wiring broke down and dropped her on the stairs on her back mid-take. Unfortunately, the technology of the time could not satisfactorily remove the wires from the shot and the scene was scrapped. 
In the ensuing years, Friedkin had claimed to many media outlets that the Spiderwalk deleted scene was an urban legend until footage was discovered in a Warner vault and reinstated for the 2000 release. Presumably with better CG to remove the... Yes, yeah. yeah, they just cleaned it all up with computers. Back in Reagan's room, she is interviewed by a psychiatrist slash hypnotist. He speaks to the presence inside the girl, and Reagan begins growling. <laughs> I like I like his his subtle hypnotisms. Like I'm I'm speaking to the voice inside of Reagan. You too are hypnotized. <laughs> it's like I, I don't know if that's how that works. Yeah, that's, nope, that's how it works. I can just hypnotize anybody I want. <laughs> you're hypnotized, and whether you're you hypnotized. like it or not. <laughs> he speaks to the presence inside the girl, and Reagan begins growling. The room is filled with an unbearable stench, and her face literally morphs into a sullen, rotting complexion. She grabs the psychiatrist by the balls and won't let go as he collapses to the ground. The next morning, we see Father Karras jogging around a track, and Lieutenant Kinderman sits reading a paper in the stands for a few laps before addressing the man. He says they told him to look for a boxer, and Kinderman tells Karras he looks like John Garfield from Body and Soul. Karras tells the lieutenant he looks like Paul Newman, and he agrees right away. He's like, oh yeah, they always tell me that. I wonder if this line would have stayed in the film if Newman had landed the Karis role. <laughs> That'd be weird if <laughs> Newman was telling someone they looked like Newman. I actually think that line is better then. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Kinderman asks Karis what he knows about Burke's death and confides in the priest that Burke's head was twisted 180 degrees around. Didn't happen in the fall? It's possible. Possible, however, unlikely. It seems insane to me that either of them would already be under the impression that this is the result of foul play. I have a little trouble following Kinderman's logic here, but he seems to be implying that the same person who desecrated the church statue may have killed the director, possibly because of the content of the film he's making? It's not super clear. He seems to have decided that a twisted neck is a witchcrafty murder, which possibly links to the black mass desecration of the statue. Either way, he's reached out to Karis for his thoughts to see if there's any usual suspects to consider, because he works as a psychiatrist of the institution. Karis basically responds that he can't help, and if he could, he wouldn't, because anything he learns in confession is inviolable. The lieutenant reminds him that a psychiatrist in California was jailed for withholding information, but claims it's not a threat. Karis reminds him that confession is protected in a way that doctor-patient confidentiality is not, which is insane to me. Is that true? Yes. A priest can say that they're not allowed to tell what someone told them in confession, but a doctor has to if it involves a person's murder. I don't know if that's still true. Maybe it was true at the time. I feel like that's not still true. I, I think it is. I mean, you could still hold the priest, you know, you could you could take them to jail for not sharing this information, but they would be excommunicated if they shared it, so they won't share it. Because I feel, I, I feel like if there's a direct threat to somebody's life, they're obligated to do something about it. I think that's for a psychiatrist, not for a priest. Okay. Before they part ways, Kinderman tries inviting Karis to a screening of Othello, but he wants to know who's in it. Debbie Reynolds, Desdemona, and Othello Groucho Marx. You happy? I've seen it. Uh. As we mentioned before, Reynolds was considered for the part of Chris McNeil, and Groucho famously hosted a game show called You Bet Your Life, on which William Peter Blatty was once a contestant. As the story goes, when Groucho asked how he would spend his prize money, Blatty responded that he'd take some time off to write a book. We cut from this chat to the Behringer Clinic, where Reagan is being held for observation. She's doing much worse now, strapped to a bed with terrible scarring all over her darkened face. She shrieks incoherently as she struggles against her restraints. The team of doctors, now assigned to Reagan's case, looks like about 20 men, and they haven't come up with any explanation to satisfy Chris. Of course there is. 
one outside chance for a cure. But, uh, I think of it as a shock treatment. Do you guys recall the last film we had that recommended curing mental illness with shock treatment? Uh, let's see. The last film that we used shock treatment on. The Ninth Configuration? That's right. <laughs> oh, was it really? Yep. <laughs> the doctors propose exorcism and then backpedal a bit to admit that they have no faith in religious healing ceremonies. But if the patient believes, then sometimes indulging their delusions can be effective. We're going to indulge the men. Chris is not impressed with the suggestion. You're telling me that I should take my daughter to a witch doctor. Sometime later, Chris finds a crucifix under her daughter's pillow, and around the same time, Lieutenant Kinderman finds a small clay figurine at the base of the steps where Burke died. Chris accuses Carl of placing the crucifix, and he denies it, as does Sharon and the other housekeeper. Lieutenant Kinderman arrives to speak with Chris and asks if Burke spoke with Reagan at all the night of his death. He shares quite bluntly with Chris that based on Burke's injuries, he was likely killed by a strong man and pushed from Reagan's window to land on the steps that were initially blamed for his death. The obvious red herring here is Carl, with whom Burke had come to blows mere days before his death. Chris invites Kinderman to discuss his suspicions with Carl directly, but Kinderman seems to immediately back off the idea, and suddenly every shot for the rest of their conversation is a slow zoom out. And it's very disorienting because Mm. it just keeps backing out, and then when Mm -hmm. it gets so far out, then it cuts to the next shot, which is already starting to zoom out. Uh, By the way, confirming you are correct about priests, uh, that they will even go to jail in order to preserve secrecy. Right. Um, and, and that if they were to to share the confession, it'd be essentially saying that the state is more important than the God. than God. Yeah. So they can't do that. But what they are taught to do is that they cannot, you know, the the reconciliation with God is is essentially saying like you need to tell the police or you're not good with God. Oh, okay. So, you know, essentially that person would be, you know, who is feels so compelled to even tell a priest that they've done this thing would not be absolved of that unless they confessed yeah. to the state. Yeah. I feel like what I would do if I were a priest who heard a confession where someone said, like, I murdered a kid and I'm going to do it again. I'd be like, well, I'm going to confess this to every priest I can find. <laughs> like, and then have everyone's guilt weighing on us until somebody cracks and gets excommunicated. No, I would just kill the guy, actually. Anyway. And then confess that to another priest. Yeah. And but that's why there's the, the lever in the confessional. It just yeah. drops him down into a Sweeney <laughs> yeah. Todd uh, meat grinder. Kinderman asks again if Burke would have any reason to visit Reagan alone, and Chris can't come up with one. Before he leaves, Kinderman tactlessly asks Chris for an autograph, pretending at first that it's for his daughter. I lied. It's for me. <laughs> Chris seems quite panicked after she closes the door behind him, possibly at the idea of Burke going to Reagan's room alone, or potentially at the thought of Reagan herself having committed this murder. Well, okay, I, I feel like, based on what you're saying about the book, this was not, maybe not heavy-handed enough, because I didn't take it as such. I'm just like, dude, if you're there babysitting a sick child, I would I would go check on them. Yeah. Like, that doesn't seem weird to me. Yeah. Well, and earlier in the film, uh, Reagan says that his her mother can invite Burke to come with them. Yeah, and so it, it doesn't seem like she's disturbed by the guy. Yeah. But that's also part of the problem is that if he's grooming her, then it's just like he's cultivating an inappropriate relationship with a child. Yeah. Suddenly, Reagan is screaming in her room, seemingly arguing with a much deeper voice. And when Chris opens the door, all of Reagan's toys and records are being spun around the room in an angry whirlwind. 
She's gripping a crucifix tight in her hand and violently stabbing herself in the vagina, which is for some reason referred to as masturbation in a lot of places. And it's like, no, this is not how that works. <laughs> Wrong. Jesus, fuck you! Man, fuck you! <laughs> the crucifix and Reagan's crotch and hands are fully lathered in blood. Chris rushes over to wrench the crucifix from her grasp, and Reagan grabs her mother by the back of the head and shoves her mother's face into her bloody crotch. Lick me! Lick me! <laughs> and then she slaps her heart to the floor, a stunt for which Ellen Burstyn requested and was refused a stunt double, and from which even today she feels residual spinal pain. And the scream that she lets loose in the film is not exaggerated for the sake of the scene. She was very badly hurt here by landing hard on her coccyx. Sharon sees Chris bloodied on the floor and makes a run for the door, but a chair is telekinetically dragged across the floor to slam the door shut. I don't know if you guys have seen the version of this where they added gremlins to every shot. No. But it's masterfully done. <laughs> Wait, what? We'll have to watch it after this. Okay. But they're the ones throwing all the records at the wall. Wow. And then like, one like, of them like kicks the chair so that it slides out in front of the door. The, the Joe Dante gremlins? Yes. <laughs> it's so well done. It's incredible. A dresser skids toward her, and Chris crawls around it toward the door, just as Reagan's head spins 180 degrees and begins speaking in Burke's voice. You know what she did? Your canting daughter? The implication being that, yes, Reagan did this to him before pushing him out the window herself. So, I feel like th this part where the head spins around bothers me in terms of like the rest of the context of the film because everything else like I understand that there's supernatural things happening but the way Reagan's body reacts to that is you know she's getting cuts on her face she's you know she's bleeding she's you know like whatever would actually happen to you if you were vomiting like is actually happening to her right but, but this is, motion would decapitate this, her. this motion would kill her yeah. she would be dead yeah. and so and and presumably this thing is planning to eventually kill her so i'm like i don't understand how she makes it past this moment in the film yeah unless she's not actually turning her head around and it's just a vision that she's implanting in chris's head sure Evidently, this line is the last thing that actor Jack McGowan was able to record before his death about a week later of influenza. He was only 54. Mm. For reference, Paul Rudd is 54. <laughs> oh my god. The scene was also reportedly shot on Linda Blair's 14th birthday, and they all had a party when they wrapped it. Sometime later, Father Karras finds Chris staring off a bridge in silence and approaches her. Apparently she was waiting for him but expected him in a frock. Chris starts by asking that if someone confessed to a murder, would he turn them in, but he says he would convince the murderer to turn themselves in. Then she flat out asks about the path to an exorcism, and Karis is very dismissive of the suggestion. The tension in Chris's voice here is very telling, too, because she believes in exorcism's usefulness even less than Karis does, but she's so desperate for anything that will fix her child that she thinks that she can just will herself to believe it if that's what it takes. Like, you can hear the resistance in her voice. She's like, okay, so what about an exorcism? How do I do an exorcism? Like, I fucking hate that I'm asking you this. Yeah. How do I do it? And after he turns her down several times, she breaks because she's like, I can't pretend I believe in this stuff anymore. But I'm begging you, just do the thing. Even if neither one of us thinks it's going to help. Please, God, do it. Kara says that in addition to being useless, an exorcism involves a lot of bullshit bureaucracy on the part of the church, and the case will need to be investigated and approved at the highest levels to authorize the dispatch of a capable exorcist. Although, 
they they seem to streamline this process. Yeah, yeah. when we get to the to process, it's like, hey, so I know this is a long process, but can we? And he's like, an exorcism? Yeah, I'll get a guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, we got a guy. You can assist. Yeah. <laughs> he tries to convince her that what she needs is a psychiatrist, not a priest. And eventually, she leads Karis to her daughter's bedroom. He finds her in bed with a badly scarred face and vomit stains down her chin and chest. There's a tube in her nose to assist her labored breathing. Reagan asks him to loosen the straps, but also denies being Reagan. He asks to speak with Reagan in exchange for a loosened strap, and then she speaks with the voice of the homeless man from the subway platform. And you're helping all all the boy, father. Before playing on Karis's guilt over his mother's death, she claims Mrs. Karis is in the room, and he asks her maiden name as proof, but instead he gets a mouthful of green slime when Reagan projectile vomits in his face. Depending on the source, this soupy mess is either a mixture of coffee and pancake batter or Anderson's pea soup. It was evidently intended to strike Father Karras in the chest, but misfired in the take, which greatly angered Jason Miller. Though, judging from the framing of the shot, unless that was altered in post, I'd assume it was always aiming for the face. So either he didn't know that, yeah. or the whole thing is made up because they just wanted this shot to be more interesting. It's it's like the uh, Dracula dead and loving it staking scene, yeah. where apparently the lore is that Steven Weber was told that there would just be a little bit of blood. And then it just kept gushing yeah. blood. In the basement later, Karis flips through some of Reagan's art while Chris finishes laundering his Georgetown University sweater. She asks what kind of evidence it would take to bring a case for exorcism to the church, and he mentions speaking in a language unknown to the victim. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Karis continues to discount the demonic possession theory, specifically because Reagan is claiming to be the devil and not some lesser demon, but canonically she is under the power of the demon Pazuzu in both the first novel and the second film, so this is possibly just another trick from the demon. Before he leaves, he asks if Reagan knew about his mother's death, as she says she had no idea. Kinderman watches Karis leave the home from a parked car across the street. We cut to Karis listening to recordings made of Chris and Reagan together before the supposed possession to get a feel of her natural voice, and we cut to Karis breaking a Eucharist in church. And then he's back in Reagan's room. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Karis sets up a recording device in case Reagan starts speaking in more languages, and she does so immediately. Karis splashes her with a small container of what he calls holy water, and she shrieks in demonic pain and indecipherable languages. Downstairs, Karis admits to Chris that it must be psychosomatic because he splashed Reagan with simple tap water he claimed he had blessed, and she reacted as though it were blessed. But maybe it was blessed by someone else first, you don't know. What if someone blessed the ocean? Well, also, you're you're a priest, and she's a demon. I mean, the rules might be stretched a little bit that just, just being in your possession... Might make it blessed? It, or not, not, maybe not make it blessed, but makes it more potent. Or if you called it holy water as you took it yeah. out. Yeah. Maybe it was um, water from the rains down in Africa. Oh. <laughs> it's actually just acid. <laughs> this isn't even holy water. Yeah, it's just acid. This is, this this is just hydrochloric acid. <laughs> and yet her skin was boiling. When she senses Karis is giving up on the case, she breaks out the big guns. She killed Bert Dennings. What? She killed Bert Dennings. Later, Karis plays the recordings back for an engineer who points out that the indecipherable language is actually just English in reverse, but
but in his position i would have just assumed i put the tape in wrong <laughs> like yeah oh then this definitely not correct give us time let her die When he listens to the recording in reverse alone later, we can hear the demon calling to Father Marin, and even what sounds like Karis's mother speaking to him. The phone rings, and Karis is being called back to the McNeil house immediately. Sharon leads her inside for something she thinks he should see. Reagan's room has reached sub-zero temperatures, but still, she unbuttons the sleeping girl's pajamas to reveal her belly, which, aside from being badly bruised, seems to have the words help me scraped into the skin. If this were my job, I'd have had the words written backward like they were scratched from the inside. Mm. Yeah. To achieve this effect, the letters were scratched into a latex stomach and then heated until the ridges melted flat again and the film was played in reverse in the edit. Karis gathers the evidence and presents it to his bishop to push it up the chain, and Karis is offering to perform the exorcism himself, but Bishop Michael thinks that someone with more experience might be necessary. <laughs> Which is like totally counter to his whole argument. Yeah. Was, no one does this. It's like, no, no, we got it. We'll, we'll, we'll send it to somebody who's got more experience. Yeah. Reach out to HR. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be somebody on the bench right now. The bishop speaks with the university president, Father Birmingham, and they agree that there's no harm in allowing Karis to assist. What about the exorcist? Have you any ideas? How about Lancaster Marin? Marin? Well, I had a notion he was over in Iraq. I think I read that he was working on a dig near Nineveh. Yeah, you're right, Mike, but he's finished. Came back three or four months ago. He's at Woodstock now. What's he doing there? Teaching? No. Lots and lots of acid. <laughs> <laughs> the Woodstock he's talking about is actually Woodstock College, a Jesuit seminary in Woodstock, Maryland. Michael worries Marin may be too old, but Tom thinks if the man is running around digging up ancient tombs in Iraq, he can't be too decrepit. He also points to an exorcism Marin performed 10 or 12 years earlier in Africa, which is the focus of both cuts of the eventual Exorcist prequel starring Stellan Skarsgård. Though Father Birmingham says that the African exorcism took months, and in the retelling it isn't nearly that long. We cut to Marin on a nature hike, getting an invitation to an exorcism. Him getting the message while he's out for a walk reminded me of the opening scenes of... Silence uh, of the Lambs? Yeah, Silence yeah. of the Lambs. <laughs> when she's jogging around uh, Quantico? Yeah, and, they, and the, he's like, you know, you're wanted at the... Yeah. We dissolve from that moment to Reagan's face exhaling, and then the famous shot of the exorcist stepping out of the cab outside the McNeil home in the late night fog. As soon as Marin and Karis meet, an ungodly howl tears through the house to address him. Marin sits to say some prayers while Karis is sent out for exorcism supplies. Holy water, snacks. <laughs> Chris offers Marin some brandy. Well, the doctors say I shouldn't. But thank God, my will is weak. Which I think that moment is not in the That's version you saw correct. either. That's correct. That's not in there. The priests dress for the ceremony, and Marin reminds Karis that the demon is a liar and will say and do anything it can to confuse them. He's instructed to ignore anything the demon says. In return, Karis tries to prepare Marin for several personalities he's identified in the demon. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced that There's she's... There's only one. They climb the stairs to Reagan's room, and right outside the door, Marin asks of Chris the girl's middle name. Teresa. What a lovely name. The men enter the room now, which is a fully refrigerated space on set. Installing the cooling system cost $50,000 from the budget, and the set started each shoot day at 20 degrees below zero. What? <laughs> Their exhalations hang crisp in the air. Marin blesses everyone in the room and splashes Reagan and Karis with holy water. 
She hocks a big slime loogie in Marin's face. That seems like dangerous to splash yes. people in minus 20 degree well cold. depending on when in the shoot day they did that that's what it was like when they got on set then they turned on lights it started to get warmer they basically would get it up to zero before they were actually but, shooting but still people being wet in that cold yes not good. no it is dangerous and they were all in long underwear and stuff like that but like you said wet under freezing temperatures is dangerous yeah the men pray together and the bed starts to lift off the ground and shake as the child growls like an angry dog as the bed lifts several feet off the ground, Karis is so awed by the sight that he loses his place in the call-and-response prayers. The demon starts screaming insults back at them while they work, and again, Reagan's head spins impossibly around, finishing a full 360 this time, but still exhaling visible breath, which really completes the illusion. Yeah. And that was a last-minute fix, because they were like, wait a minute, this model's head is not breathing anymore. We need to find a way to pipe air through it so that it's still breathing while it's spinning around. Her straps break loose and her eyes go white as she lifts off the mattress into the air. Marin recognizes this as the power of Christ, lifting the girl from the demon's control, and holy water is applied liberally. Seasoned to taste, serves the Lord. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you! That the power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Like 13 or 14 times in a row. Does it? <laughs> Does it, Jay? The power of Christ compels you. Is the power of Christ compelling me? Is that what's happening? The power of Christ <laughs> compels you. Guess what? It's not that compelling. <laughs> A moment which will now always remind me of the scene in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, when Dr. Evil loses control of his mechanical chair, <laughs> which starts spinning out of control. Getting a little afraid. I need an old priest and a young priest. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Whoa, hello. Okay. Sick as a dog now. As Marin splashes the girl's floating body, the water seems to break through her skin like an extreme acid. When she lowers back to the bed, Karis quickly reties her hands. Do you have she any idea how they did that one, though? What? The 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 quick slash in the leg. Oh, that was acid. No, oh, that, I, that I was actually acid. Yeah, it, it looks really good. <laughs> yeah, it does. It looks uh, great. I'm not exactly sure how they did it. It Again, might be a jump cut. Oh, maybe. Because I was, I was going to say, you, I, I can't think of a way to do it without like lines or wires or something that that's they ripping would, something off yeah, yeah that's ripping something off it happens so but fast. it doesn't look like patches before it gets hit right yeah. right she physically throws both men to the floor and when they look up she is reaching toward an enormous backlit pazuzu statue that appears beside the bed for a moment and then vanishes reagan seems to pass out and Marin suggests they take a break to recover from what they've already been through karis asks why the demon chose this girl and Marin says it picks whoever it thinks will make them feel the worst about it and this is, again, not something I think in the theatrical cut, but it's basically trying to ruin their faith by showing them what a terrible thing it can do and to make them both think like, this is hopeless. There's no way that we can fix this and we just feel terrible about what's happening. Kara sits alone with Reagan for a moment who begins speaking in his deceased mother's voice. Dime, why you do this to me? He tries his best to ignore it, but eventually he's screaming back at her and Marin orders him out of the room to compose himself. Chris finds him outside and asks Karis if Reagan will die, and he assures her she won't before heading back inside. Just then, the doorbell rings, and she finds Kinderman on her porch. Upstairs, Karis finds Marin face down on the bed. He tries to administer CPR, but the man is dead. 
He drags Reagan off the bed and just starts pounding her in the face, demanding the demon leave this girl and enter him. And keep in mind, this is a boxer. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> this guy has fists that he's putting in a child's face. She tears away the St. Joseph medal that Marin put around his neck, and suddenly his eyes change to Reagan's demon contact lens look as the invitation is accepted. But before he loses power completely, Karis takes the demon with him before lunging through the bedroom window and down to the steps below, rolling to his death. These steps are a popular tourist destination in Georgetown, and to get this shot, they laid down a half inch of rubber padding over the steps, which were still deadly for this stuntman to roll down. He also wore a blood pack under his sweater so that it would naturally ooze out in a single shot when he reached the bottom of the stairs. Chris and Kinderman rush into the room at the sound of the exploding window and find only a crying Reagan and no demon now. <laughs> She's hesitant to approach the girl but eventually accepts that she has her daughter back and they hug and cry together. At the base of the stairs outside, Father Dyer offers absolution to the dying Father Karis. And apparently, he couldn't work up tears for this scene, and William Friedkin was an actual friend of the priest, like they were on good terms, and he said, I need you to tell me that you trust me. And he's like, I trust you. And he's like, I need you to, to understand that I love you. And he said, I understand that you love me. And then he slapped the guy as hard as he could, and then he turned to the cameraman and said, roll. Sometime later, the McNeil house is all packed up. Chris tells Sharon that she'll miss the girl, but Sharon seems decided on leaving her post as Chris's secretary, although she's back working for the McNeils in the second film. Sharon randomly finds the St. Joseph medal in her pocket, the same way Billy Cutshaw randomly finds the St. Christopher medal in his pocket at the end of the ninth configuration. She gives it to Chris, and they hug each other goodbye. Chris finds Father Dyer waiting outside. She assures him that Reagan doesn't remember any of the experience, and amazingly, as she comes outside, we see Reagan's face is healed incredibly fast from the scarring. Reagan sees the man's collar and offers him a hug before following her mother to the car. Chris hands the St. Joseph medal to Dyer out the car window, but he hands it back to her, which might also not be... Well, she hands it to him, but he keeps it in the original. Right. and then in the recut, he gives it back to her. He finds Lieutenant Kinderman here to check on the family and tells him that they just left. He tries again to invite a priest to a movie screening. <laughs> What's playing? Mothering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff Jackie Gleason. And in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Another one. Had your lunch? No. Again, this is not the actual cast of any version of Wuthering Heights. He's yeah. making jokes. And that, that whole last bit's not in there either. Right. In the theatrical ending, Kinderman compares their meeting to the final line of Casablanca when Bogart tells Claude Rains, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but that is not in the other version i i do like that he's so desperate for just like a friend yeah they just like hey i know i just questioned you about a bunch of stuff but you want to go see a movie with yeah. me <laughs> in exorcist 3 it's established that kinderman and dyer are still regularly attending films together and in particular it's a wonderful life well into the 90s after this that's the end of the film but now we're going to go through sequels and changes from the book an early draft of the novel actually centers on a possessed boy who ends up dragged to court to answer for a murder committed during a possession in the finished book reagan has an older brother who died at three years old when he was misprescribed a dangerous antibiotic after a lingering infection so as averse as she is to the religious world chris from the novel is not totally sold on the word of doctors either in fact she's sort of a well-known spiritualist in the book which fits with the character having been based on shirley mclean who's a famous believer of reincarnation 
The book leans harder on Carl as having put the crucifix under Reagan's pillow and for possibly having killed Burke Dennings. It's also implied that in the hours Burke was killed, Carl's alibi doesn't hold water because at the same time he was actually cheating on his wife, the female servant. He and his wife were also fired in the past for trying to defraud their previous client, but that information is never revealed to Chris in the book. The book also blames Reagan more blatantly for defacing the church statue. When Kinderman examines Reagan's clay figures in the kitchen, he actually pockets a few flakes of paint from one to test against the paint on the statue, and they match. So he so, confirms that these additions that were added onto the statue were from her clay collection. Okay, and so Reagan had somehow snuck out of the house. And defaced that statue on her own, yeah. Sequels. The film's unexpected profitability encouraged the studio to pursue a sequel, which Friedkin flatly refused to be involved with. Blatty also announced he would not be taking part as he was still owed a full $20 million of his contractually obligated pay. Yeah, it, because of his, a percentage of gross that he was getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope he got that. I think he did eventually, but he had to fight them for it for a long time. Exorcist 1 candidates, director John Borman, actress Louise Fletcher, and actor Richard Burton were reconvened in 1977 to make Exorcist 2 The Heretic, but word of mouth tanked its box office because it is terrible. <laughs> it's just really bad. Blatty and Friedkin planned their own unofficial sequel to replace the travesty of The Heretic, which eventually resulted in the Blatty written and directed The Ninth Configuration, which we covered in our first season of the show, as the middle film in what some have called Blatty's Trilogy of Faith. Blatty also started working on a novel for a third film entitled Legion, which was adapted later into the Blatty-directed Exorcist III, starring George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, and Brad Dourif. Blatty dropped Carol Co. for Morgan Creek when the first production company demanded the arbitrary insertion of Reagan and twin children into the story. After The Exorcist III was better received, Morgan Creek commissioned William Wisher Jr. to write an original prequel describing Marin's first experience facing off with Pazuzu, Novelist Caleb Carr was employed to rewrite Wisher's draft, and John Frankenheimer was set to direct, with Liam Neeson taking over the Father Marin role from Max von Sydow. When Frankenheimer passed away unexpectedly, he was replaced in the director's chair by Paul Schrader, at which point Liam Neeson stepped away from the project to make room for Stellan Skarsgård. Producer James G. Robinson was beyond disappointed with the final product and clashed regularly with Schrader during the editorial process until Rennie Harlan was brought in to reshoot more than half of the film and in 2004, Exorcist The Beginning hit theaters and I was definitely there opening weekend. The Harlan cut was very poorly received and Morgan Creek tried to save face with a limited release of Schrader's cut of the film entitled Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. I watched them both this week, and Schrader's cut is much worse than Harlan's, oh, really? but they're both worthless. Oh. It's, they're, they're useless prequels, and the writing is very bad for both. But Rennie Harlan's is super dark and very active, and Schrader's version is very slow and very deliberate and has a lot of pacing problems. In 2016, Fox aired two seasons of an Exorcist series starring Gina Davis, Alan Ruck, and Ben Daniels, and I happened to binge both seasons this week. If you're worried about spoilers, skip the next couple minutes here, but I somehow doubt anybody was just sitting down to the Exorcist TV series right now. <laughs> Halfway through the first season, the Gina Davis character, who we'd known so far as Angela Rance, is revealed to be the adult Reagan McNeil, making it a direct sequel to the film series. In flashback sequences, we see the mother, Chris McNeil, wrote a book called The Devil in My Daughter and tried to profit from Reagan's story. We also see Reagan playing with the Ouija board opposite a visible Captain Howdy, which is kind of fun. So we see adult Reagan and Captain Howdy watching child Reagan 
play the Ouija board and the guy keeps reaching down and moving the planchette for her. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What does he look like? He looks kind of like Captain Obvious from those uh, travel commercials. Like he's like <laughs> wearing like a suit, like a full okay. like, uniform getup. Interesting. Yeah, it's very weird. Insanely, toward the end of the first season, we see Reagan kill her mother by twisting her head around and shoving her down some stairs, but it's not played like a huge season-ender moment. They just roll past it in two scenes, and they don't bring it up again. <laughs> okay. It's like, what? That was Chris McNeil. She's like the secondary main character of the original film. Well, apparently the leading actress. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> the second season drops Reagan and her family completely and just follows the exorcists from the first film to a foster home run by John Cho. The second season is so bad that I can't believe they aired all of it, but I did notice one of them was directed by Ty West, who is a huge name now in the horror sphere for having directed the Pearl X Maxine trilogy. Most recently, in 2020, Morgan Creek announced a partnership with Blumhouse Productions to produce a new Exorcist trilogy to serve as a direct sequel to the 1973 film, directed by David Gordon Green, which is the same formula that worked very well for the recent Halloween trilogy from the same director. In 1990, Linda Blair was recruited by parody filmmakers to play a comedic version of her own famous Reagan character, renamed Nancy, as a reference to the former First Lady. 1990's Repossessed film acts as a pseudo-sequel to the original film. It also features Leslie Nielsen, apparently at Blair's suggestion, as Father May I, who is brought out of retirement to re-exercise Nancy after she finds herself repossessed by a demon escaping from a TV during a televangelist broadcast. It's actually an unbearable watch, but Blair has said it was fun to work on. But we it just watched it a couple nights ago. It was so bad. It's hard. It's hard to watch. I really, I couldn't, I couldn't even do it. Like I was, I was, I was having to divert my attention away to tolerate making it to the end of that film. And it definitely feels like Leslie Nielsen was not enjoying being a part of it because 90% yep. of his stuff is shot in one room. I, well, it feels like the uh, home movies treatment with, uh, um, what's his face? Uh, Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Where he's, all of his like, stuff is in He's inserts. just in a classroom, yeah. you know, the entire time. <laughs> well, I had seen this movie uh, long ago when probably close to the time it came out. So I would have been, uh, would have been nine <laughs> yeah. when it came out. Um, and I, I see, I had like fond memories in my head. I did too. But I mostly <laughs> only remember the end because I remember that Jesse the Body and Mean Gene were were in there. <laughs> For a lot of it. Yeah. Like a weirdly <laughs> lot of the last third act of the movie. Um, and I do remember the, the running gag of the Father May I. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> It's funny once, but then they, they just Keep really just over lean over. into it. Um, the other thing that uh, basically the only part that I remembered is the uh, devil in a blue dress uh, mm. music number. That, that was the only part that I remembered from having seen it as a kid. I think I saw it on like on TNT or something like some TV broadcast of the movie. I don't even know if I caught the whole thing. I just remember seeing that I, that at the end. I feel like what this revealed for me though was cuz I'm just like, "Oh my god, how do you Linda Blair like go into this thing that so like disrespects the like the the thing that you are known for this this masterpiece of filmmaking that that is part of your legend and and you go into this thing that's just like an abomination of of that and then I looked at everything she did in between The Exorcist and this and I'm like okay never mind makes sense yeah I th I think it's just a situation <laughs> where she was tired of people talking to her about The Exorcist all the time so 
I mean, anytime you're known for just one thing, you start to hate that thing if that's the only thing you're known for. Uh, sure, I get that. But at the same time, it wasn't like she went on to have this amazing career right. after The Exorcist that, that she was tarnishing with this yeah. movie. No, and I think it was mostly a situation where they were like, here's a check for this much money. She's like, really? I don't normally get this much. And it's like, well, you're the only person who could play this part. Otherwise, this movie won't even happen. Yeah. So here's a bunch of money and you can take it to, she has a charity for for animal rights and, and stuff. Uh, not at the time at this movie. Oh, she didn't? Not in, yet. In 1990? Oh, okay. Well, then she just liked money and she got money. So good for her. People deserve money. Less than a year after the original Exorcist film, Turkish filmmaker Metin Erksin rushed a blatant Exorcist ripoff called Satan into theaters with the same basic storyline, <laughs> the same exact storyline. A remake called Satan filmed entirely with a Turkish cast and crew. It's mostly referred to by people as the Turkish Exorcist, and it has since become a cult classic. It plays the same scene for scene identically to The Exorcist, with a few minor changes. Instead of a Ouija board, Reagan's mother simply finds a book about Satan, called Satan, which is where the title comes from. She doesn't say anything to the partygoers when she walks down the stairs, but she shits on her own feet instead of peeing on them. Oh, there you go. Other than that, it's pretty much the exact same movie, beat for beat. <laughs> but it makes sense that in it. In a Turkish language version of the film, you're not going to have an astronaut at the party. <laughs> because the <laughs> Turkish space program is still to be summoned. Uh, those are all the sequels and prequels and ripoffs yeah. and spinoffs and parodies. I mean, there's more. There's uh, uh Exorcist parody that starts one of the scary movie films. Right, right, right. Um, and there's plenty of them all over the place. Well, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, I, um, definitely. Big I think thumbs up. It, it's definitely it's a good movie. Um, it's it's very original. Um, I think that you know my own my only real complaint about the movie is that it's a little slow going in some places. There there are chunks of the film that I think you get the same effect of what they're trying to do in a much shorter version. Yeah, uh, it's a thumbs up for me, and but. You know, you know how I feel about horror in general. Um, and while I did, I would, I think it's a very well-made movie. Um, it's definitely not going to be like on my more frequent watch list kind of thing. But I also feel like it doesn't resonate as much with me for a couple of reasons. I was talking to my niece about this, and I, and as someone who doesn't have kids, and I think the more horrifying aspect of this is. There's something wrong with my child, and the doctors can't figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I and I, while I can appreciate that from from one standpoint, I think you guys could probably appreciate it a little bit more having kids and 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 having like you know it's like you know, if my kid is hurt, sick or hurt, I I want answers. I want clear answers, and no one's giving them. And I can see the frustration that would bring. Uh, but you know, I also have like some. I have some questions, so it's the, probably the book would answer, and they're really nitpicky questions, and so I don't really want to bring them up. Are they about the powers of the devil and, and uh, the limits well, of his abilities? It, it, it's, it's like I get that this particular Pazuzu has a beef with Marin. Right. Um, but never comes out and, and, and only kind of says it in passing in a reverse language thing. Like, yeah. It seems like if you want Marin here, you should be saying, let me talk to Father Marin. I also feel like it's it's a weird choice to have Marin die off camera. Yes. yes. When everyone's out of the room and just come back to his dead body. It's, it's very like, anticlimactic considering that that's the main like yeah. 
guy that you know that's that that's that's part of presumably why Pazuzu would be doing this. He wants yeah. to get Marin there to kill him. And what's weird in the second film is that it's another like it's like they combined the Kinderman and Karis characters into this older priest character who is acting as an inspector of the church to investigate the death of Father Marin. But it's like two priests died in the exact same incident. Yeah. And you're, for some reason, he's only investigating Marin's death. And it's like, they both died. Like, why are we only checking in on one of them? Well, I guess Marin was more important to the church. Well, and but also, what is there to investigate? The, the exorcism was approved. You know the risks going in. And it succeeded. Yeah. By all accounts. Yeah. So what happens after the guy dies with the spirit demon in him? Well, in the third film, uh, we kind of find out that he didn't totally die. Um, that the spirit was still alive in the body and that it took over uh, an, another character, a person who was a serial killer in the region. And so the personality of Karis, the personality of Pazuzu, and the personality of the serial killer all exist in the same body. And so it can take on either of their appearances. And so there's a scene where Kinderman sits down in, in, in a cell in an uh, asylum across from this serial killer who's all tied up and everything. And suddenly when the guy leans into the light, it's Father Karis, like mm. played by Jason Miller. Again. Oh, really? And it's it's a very cool moment in the movie because you're just sitting there. Like, oh, shit. Like, what the fuck? Why is he in here? How, how did this happen? Um, but yeah, it's it's very cool. And Brad Dorff is obviously the serial killer of those three characters. As, as he is wont to be. I, I was right, going to yeah. say, as, if you would ask me who it would be, I picked him. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like when this version of the film, the 2000 version, came out, that there were... Was Friedkin still... I feel like I saw an interview with Friedkin and Blatty about... Yeah, he has said that he prefers this version now. Um, but I remember them getting into an argument in the interview about the ending in that... Or maybe it was this, maybe we were talking about it with you when we watched the ninth configuration. Uh, maybe I was looking up interviews. I can't remember. I'm sorry that I I'm, it's in my head, but I remember this interview about the very ending, about the beautiful friendship moment. No, about um, Father Karras's death. Okay, and it's Friedkin's belief that the demon wins by by forcing Killing both of them. Well, yeah, by forcing him to commit suicide, which would be a sin. Yeah, and Blatty uh. says, no, he didn't force him to commit suicide. Yeah. He committed suicide on his own to take the demon out. Correct. That's that's, yeah. that's how I read the end. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I, I agree with Blatty's interpretation. Yeah, and, and, and Blatty was very upset because he doesn't want people to think that the demon won. Well, he, he was very mad that theatrical audiences thought that. That yeah. they, they thought that the demon wins because it kills both of the priests. And he was like, no, the priest killed the demon by right. taking it out the window. Sacrifice himself yeah. to right. save the girl. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree. I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm just recalling this interview in which I think is interesting that Friedkin and Blatty had such differing yeah. opinions about right such the, a fundamental part of it. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, there's nothing that's different about this the way it's shot. It's just their own different interpretations. Yeah, it's like if you talk to the writers and the director of <laughs> Avengers Endgame and you say, "Was Cap?" going back in time in the same timeline or was he going back in time in a different timeline and they, they disagree about where he went and how long he spent there and what happened it's like god damn it you guys you didn't sit down and talk this out before you shot the whole movie because <laughs> the ending doesn't make sense now but it does in the exorcist um but i i uh 
I also think it's interesting because people have pointed out, well, the demon couldn't have gone into Father Karras because Father Karras believed in God and, and the demon couldn't enter the heart of someone who had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it's like, no, but he was struggling with his faith. That's the yeah. whole point. He's the only person who could have accepted the demon into his chest. And that's why you need Father Dyer to offer him absolution after he's already fallen down right, the steps. Right. So my other questions would be like things like, was this demon released in this grave site? Like, like this whole this whole thing of starting in Iraq, like what what is it serving? What what it what, it, what when they like when he like finds that figurine and the and the metal like did that was that like breaking some kind it, of seal? Like is it more like in the awakening when he actually lets this thing out into yeah. the world? Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think there is supposed to be a connection to the discovery and the releasing of this demon. But like, how does it? How so? If 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 Marin released it uh, while he was digging in Iraq, why did it? Show why up does in it show up in Georgetown? Yeah. yeah, like what's the connection here? Like I was, I was, I was assuming there would be, you know, the relic made its way there somehow, but mm-hmm. it doesn't, right? I, no, I don't think it does. I, I think maybe the reason that this happens in Georgetown is because they know, like, the demon knows the sequence of events that would follow this possession, which is that. When he's done with his dig here, he's going to return to the D.C. area where he's in connection with these these church groups who would assign him to this particular exorcism, and that will reunite us. So yeah. I will pick this person in particular who they also, like, in any version of this story, the person who needs to be exercised is a person who's, like, weak-willed or is, or is going through a difficult time in their life in mm-hmm. general. And so this girl is perpetually sick. Her parents are divorcing. She's being neglected by her mother who's working on set all the time. And so she has her own problems. And being that, groomed by the director. Right, exactly. Man, so yeah. she's and there's, susceptible. There are also implications that she may have even been sexually assaulted by Burke already. Um, just in terms of the fact that she is, she is randomly withdrawn at different times. That when she's at the doctor's office, she tells him to keep his fingers away from her goddamn cunt. It's stuff that like a kid wouldn't normally be saying um and some of it can be blamed on this demon and some of it could also be like well no she's having mood swings and these are like symptoms of abuse that you would yeah. be very uncomfortable with someone being near that region of your body right um so so is your is your interpretation that the ouija board is just incidental like it had it it wasn't like a like a a summoning like the gate kind of situation yeah i wouldn't say that it's it's not a complete coincidence i think that it's just an indication for this possessing spirit that she's open to this realm mm. and that she is that she's susceptible to possession um, because she's willing to participate in this and that she has a, a free enough interpretation of of what is possible that something could conceivably enter her and take over. Yeah, but I think we all agree. Big big thumbs up for this one. Our director here was William Friedkin. His biggest titles at the time were The Night They Raided Minsky's, The Boys in the Band, and most recently The French Connection. His next film was The Sorcerer after this. Last year, we covered his first 1980s title with the controversial Cruising, and he later directed To Live and Die in L.A., Jade, Killer Joe. The writer here, William Peter Blatty, also plays the producer of the film within the film, so you see him on set for that first scene. He's probably best known for this and its various sequels and semi-sequels. He also co-wrote A Shot in the Dark, the second installment of the Pink Panther series with Blake Edwards. He has directing credits on The Ninth Configuration and Exorcist Three. 
He won an Oscar for writing this, and he was nominated as the producer in the Best Picture category. And I think he also got the Golden Globe for Best Screenwriting for The Ninth Configuration. Mm. Cinematographer Owen Roisman, he was the DP of The French Connection, played against Sam and The Heartbreak Kid. After this, he lit The Taking of Pelham 123, The Stepford Wives, Three Days of the Condor, Network. So far on the show, we've seen his work in our Minnesota review of The Black Marble and more recently in True Confessions. He's back later this season for Absence of Malice and Taps and later Tootsie, The Addams Family, and Wyatt Earp. Technically, he split duty on this film with Billy Williams, who DP'd the footage from the prologue in Iraq, but only Roisman was nominated for the Oscar. And very sadly, he just passed away yesterday as we're recording this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Editor Norman Gay, this was his first editing credit, followed by his work on Shockwaves. So far on the show, he's cut Honeysuckle Rose. Editor Evan A. Lotman also cut Panic in Needle Park, Honeysuckle Rose, Rollover, and later Sophie's Choice, Muppets Take Manhattan, and Maximum Overdrive. The music here is sort of from Michael Oldfield. That's the Tubular Bells right, right. Uh, writer. Uh, he, the first enlisted composer was Lalo Schifrin, who turned in a score that was rejected harshly by Friedkin. Like, he literally, like threw the tapes away in the parking lot was like fuck this music i fucking hate it uh, bernard herman was brought in to replace that score but thought that there wasn't enough time to establish a, a consequential theme before the story starts because the beginning is very weirdly paced you have multiple scenes in a row that take place in different continents and um so he actually eventually decided that this movie should go without a score um and made the recommendation to friedkin do you guys recall the last time that Bernard Herrmann was brought in to score a film and instead suggested no music? Was it Frenzy? No. No. It was a Hitchcock film, though, right? It was a Hitchcock film, yeah. The Birds? Sure. Yeah, it was The Birds. Friedkin has since said that if he knew of Tangerine Dream at the time, he would have asked them to score the film. Oh, oh yeah. I'd love to hear Tangerine Dream's Exorcist score. Oh, Instead, he used existing classical compositions and, most famously, the opening piano medley of progressive rock musician Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells track off his 1973 debut album. The makeup here came from Dick Smith. The makeup effects for Reagan and Father Marin were both done by celebrated makeup artist Dick Smith, and both makeup jobs took three to four hours each day to prepare, and often, Von Cito was wearing more makeup than Reagan. Yeah, I... I was, I was when I was watching him I was like god he looks so old yeah but but I know he's gonna be like around for another 50 years yeah. how, how is he <laughs> looking this old now you're so old the princess will marry me Smith was regularly complimented for the Reagan face but people didn't appreciate the work he did by adding 30 years to Max von Sydow's face because many people didn't even realize it was there for years after von Sydow would show up to auditions and surprise people by being much younger than they'd expected it was on this film that Dick Smith first recruited Rick Baker as an assistant. We've also seen his work in The House of Dark Shadows, Altered States, Scanners, Nighthawks, and The Fan. Later he'll work on Ghost Story, Starman, Poltergeist 3, Death Becomes Her, and Forever Young, among others. Death Becomes Her is some of my favorite makeup work in any Yeah. Ellen Burstyn played Chris McNeil. We saw her last as Doris in our review of Same Time Next Year. She got a Best Actress nomination for this performance. She was Lois Farrow in The Last Picture Show and got a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Alice Hyatt in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and won Best Actress. And Sarah Goldfarb in Requiem for a Dream and got another Best Actress nomination. As I mentioned before, Chris was based on Shirley MacLaine and Reagan on MacLaine's daughter, Sachi. Or Sachi? S-A-C-C-H-I. Sachi. Max von Sydow played Father Marin. 
He began his career working with Swedish director Ingmar Bergman on films like The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, and The Virgin Spring. His career in American film began largely as Father Marin in The Exorcist, and then as Jobert in Three Days of the Condor. After this, he's King Osric in Conan the Barbarian, Brewmeister Smith in Strange Brew, Blofeld in Never Say Never Again, an uncredited role in Ice Pirates, Dr. Keynes or Kynes in Lynch's Dune, the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, Reunited with Stallone as Judge Fargo in Judge Dredd, Papanow in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Lor Santaka in The Force Awakens, and his last big thing was an appearance as the Three-Eyed Raven on the Game of Thrones. We've also seen him so far in Flash Gordon and Victory. He passed away in March of 2020. Father Marin was actually based on Father Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, discoverer of the Peking Man fossils, and sometimes controversial philosopher in the Catholic Church, who also inspired the character of Oscar Werner's Father Jean Telemond in 1968's The Shoes of a Fisherman. Lee J. Cobb played Lieutenant Kinderman. He was juror number three in the original Twelve Angry Men. He's Johnny Friendly in On the Waterfront and Cramden in Our Man Flint. The character returns for the third film of the trilogy, played by George C. Scott. Kitty Wynn played Sharon. She's Helen in The Panic at Needle Park, and she comes back in the same role for The Exorcist to the Heretic. Friedkin found her playing Ophelia opposite Stacey Keach's Hamlet in Central Park. Apparently Jill Clayburgh also auditioned for this part. Mm. But I feel like it's a small part for her, but still yeah. interesting to have her. Jack McGowan played Burke Dennings. He was Padre Gog, lieutenant of the Leprechaun in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And he's also Pecha in Dr. Zhivago, and he's credited as Fool in 1970's King Lear. Jason Miller played Father Karras. This is his first film. He's back as Lieutenant Frankie Reno in pseudo-sequel The Ninth Configuration, and then Father Karras again in The Exorcist Three. He was nominated for an Oscar for this performance. His son is actor Jason Patrick from The Lost Boys. Oh. And his father-in-law is Smokey from Smokey and the Bandit, Jackie Gleason. Ah. So I didn't realize that Jason Patrick's father is the young priest and yeah. his grandfather is Smokey from Smokey and the Bandit. That's crazy. It, it's weird that he took the first name and not the last name. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess his full name is Jason Patrick Miller, mm. but he goes by, he uses his middle name as his last name professionally for whatever reason. Linda Blair played Reagan. She's best known for this part, a role that she returned to for The Exorcist to the Heretic and sort of for The Exorcist parody repossessed, though technically the character is renamed Nancy Aglet. She also appeared in Airport 1975, Roller Boogie, Savage Streets. We saw her earlier this season in Ruckus and Hell Knight. She plays the titular Jenny in MacGyver episode Jenny's Chance, and she later appears as a reporter in Scream, and I'll have to assume that she'll show up in the upcoming Exorcist sequel trilogy that David Gordon Green is putting together, but who knows? William O'Malley plays Father Dyer. He's an actual priest, so he doesn't have many other credits. Barton Heyman played Dr. Klein. He was Duncan in Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Mac in Raising Cain. Rudolf Schundler played Carl. He was Professor Milius in Suspiria. Robert Simmons played Dr. Taney. This was his first film. He played Lanky Nibs in The Ice Pirates, Ezra Hutchison in Mickey and Maud, and Proctor in Chud 2. Vasiliki Milieros played Karis's mother. This was her only credit. She was born in 1883, and she passed away before this film was released. John Mahone played Language Lab Director. This was his first feature film appearance. He sold some ice cream to MacGyver downstairs from his beachside condo in The Prodigal. He's also a police sergeant in The People Under the Stairs, Carl in Armageddon, NATO Colonel in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, and George in seven episodes of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Donna Mitchell played Mary Jo Perrin. This was her first feature film. She's back for The Happy Hooker and The Fan, 
and much later as Elizabeth Banks's mom in The Baxter, a personal favorite of mine. She also recently went uncredited as Mrs. Hildesley in The Goldfinch. Roy Cooper played Jesuit Dean. He's also General's aide in Simon, Father McNulty in The Basketball Diaries, and Pickney in Amistad. Robert Geringer played Senator at Party. He's a judge in Hide and Plain Sight last season. Mercedes McCambridge played the voice of the demon. She won an Oscar for her performance as Sadie Burke in All the King's Men. She was also Luce Benedict and Miss Van Campen in A Farewell to Arms, and she got a nomination for her part in Giant. After this, she shows up in The Concord, Airport 79, and The Other Side of the Wind. In 1987, her son was fired for an embezzlement scheme and went home and put on a Halloween mask and killed his wife and children before killing himself by impressively using two guns to shoot himself in both temples simultaneously. Okay. I didn't even think that was possible. Paul Bateson played the radiologist's assistant. He's a serial killer. Eleanor Blair, the mother of Linda Blair, <laughs> played a nurse in the film. during one Very of the... casually, yeah, he's a serial killer. He killed people. Real life. Mary Boylan played the first mental patient. She was Miss Reed in Annie Hall, so at least one of these patients was an actress. Dick Callan, unless they just let a crazy person play yeah. <laughs> a character in another movie. Dick Callanan played astronaut. That's Billy Cutshaw, but he wasn't named in the credits. Uh, he's cigarette commercial man in Woody Allen's Bananas. I saw him in Island Claws for a minisode, and his final credit was as Jennifer's date in Private Lessons 2. Eileen Dietz played Pazuzu's face. She was also Dana in The Clonus Horror and Winnie Gilmore in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything we have for The Exorcist. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. This also brings to a close our 12 Days of Christmas special, as well as our second regular season. It's been so fun bringing you all along on this ridiculous experiment, and I hope you'll join us New Year's Eve for our year-end wrap-up episode, where we try to pay tribute to 1981 in total. Since we never had a chance to do it before, we leave you now with the trailer for the first of our 12 Days series, Fantastic Planet. Fantastic Planet. Special Grand Prize, Cannes Film Festival. Fascinating. A fine adventure story. Brilliant. I recommend it. Spellbinding science fiction.
fantastic planet.